Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. I'm Scott McGee, News Editor of Insurance Post, and today I am joined by EIS's Rory Yates, Compliance Consultants Branko Bielababa, Mazar's Sarah Uwabia, and LexisNexis Risk Solutions' Martin Matthews to talk about how inflation and the Financial Conduct Authority's consumer duty transformed insurance in 2023. Today on the Insurance Post podcast, I'm excited to have with me Rory Yates, Senior Vice President of Corporate Strategy at technology platform EIS, Regulation and Compliance Consultant Branko Bielobaba, Sarah Oabia, Financial Services Consultant Partner at Mazars, and Martin Matthews, Vice President for Personal and Commercial Lines for the UK and Ireland at LexisNexis Risk Solutions. They're going to share their views on the regulatory requirements plus soaring prices that have shaped the industry so far this year. Hi, Rory, Branko, Sarah and Martin. Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. Hey, Scott. 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 Hello, Scott. So I'll start uh, with you, Martin. Looking back on 2023, what impact did the FCA's consumer duty have on products and services offered by general insurers? Yeah, so you won't be surprised to hear that I have a data lens uh, on, on this particular question. Um, but throughout 2023, we, we've actually seen a, um, an influx of new um, products come to market from insurers as they look to um, address the specific needs um, of their customers. I think um, when you combine consumer duty with price walking and then the economic situation that we find ourselves in at the moment, there's a kind of maelstrom, if you like, of issues that insurers have, have had to deal with. Um, but certainly with with my data hat on, what we've seen the insurers do here is is react by um, by way of more intelligent and greater use of data. They've had to do that. They've had to work much harder to make sure that the products that they're offering are actually fit for the consumer and they actually help them in that moment of need and when the worst should happen. Uh, Branco, do you think the consumer duty was the cause of the plug being pulled on certain general insurance products and lines? Partly, but don't forget consumer duty only came into force on the 31st of uh, July this year, but insurers have been looking at their data for ages but it's more meaningful for customers to actually buy something that would definitely work where the insurer is demonstrating that it does indeed work claims are paid it is well priced and well explained and those sort of things I, I don't think are sort of miraculous discoveries uh, that those should have been in place for a long long time so it's forcing insurers and brokers and, and anyone else involved in the delivery chain to really think about what they're doing at each stage of that particular journey. Sarah, do you agree? Uh Yeah, I would agree with Branko on that one. I think uh, consumer duty, uh, for general insurers at least, had already been partly implemented through the general insurance pricing practices um, reforms that took place a few years ago. Um, But I would say, I think with all the work that's been done around consumer duty, it has caused insurers to re-review their product book. Um, And in some cases, I think to do a little bit of a spring clean um, to simplify their products, sometimes reduce the number of products that they have. um, And in, in doing that, some products will have left the market for sure. Uh, Rory, and and finally you. Uh, We've seen some examples of it in in the news in the last few months, but would you agree? I I would agree with everything that's been said. I would say I've got a slightly different take on it in in the sense that I think that mostly the response we've seen so far gets the insurer to the start line of of what's required. 
I think we still see this as an obligation far too often and, and not an opportunity. But as highlighted by uh, everybody so far, uh, I think some of the responses suggesting that that insurers are finally realising that, that there is huge opportunity in act, acting favourably to customers, that you know acting on the knowledge they have of customers and 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 actually reflecting that in their propositions and their products and their offerings is going to be hugely valuable for everyone. Mm. Um, Martin, I'll, I'll come back to you. Talk about inflation. It's been it's been a subject that's uh, that's uh, lasted all year and spoke about even last year as well. Uh, and and it's been. Uh, a gradual increase, etc., on over the over the past over the past year and a half. How how has inflation altered products that you that you've seen in, within the market and services offered by general insurers? Yeah, I mean it, it's it's difficult at the moment. So so inflation from an insurance perspective, we've seen figures of thirty percent and plus quoted in terms of the cost of of servicing a claim, and of course that that effectively has led to um, higher premiums for customers. Um, and, and that that is ultimately what will what will continue to happen. Uh, I think as we go through um, 2023, as it becomes, you know, we've still got the lag effect. So even if um, uh, at a economic level um, inflation might start to drop, there's still going to be a period of time before insurers are able to um, react to that and bring and bring prices back down. So we know we're in a price sensitive market. We know that consumers do shop around. Um, what we are seeing from the data that that we have in house is that actually. Um, shopping for insurance has increased significantly um, and so has switching so we we sort of monitor whether people stay with their insurer whether they actually switch to a new insurer and so on and we can see that 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 increase in cost is just leading to um, more shopping behavior for the consumer which is I guess not unsurprising but it's good to validate that that's that's what's happening out there Um, and if you're an insurer it comes back to my previous point I think you just have to work particularly hard now um, in order to make sure you're fulfilling all your obligations under regulation as well as offering a price that's going to be attractive for the customer. Uh, Rory, have you got anything to add? Yeah, I would like to, uh, I, again, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think the the two points that I think are really interesting in that is that I think this is a, a long-term problem. I think we, we, we've up until now talked about it as a short-term inflationary economic problem. I think if you look at the fact that claims inflation has out you know, outperformed in the wrong way inflation for uh, the extent it has. I think consumer intelligence said today it's 27% claims inflation on home. Um, there are wider supply chain issues, um, complexity in, in labour supply and so on and so forth that aren't going away. I think insurers are going to have to look to address this long term. Uh, these ecosystems are going to get more complicated, the data fluidity, the regulatory pressures, these are all going to intensify. So a- actually having a long term strategy for this is going to be incredibly important. Uh, Sarah, I'll come to you. From your perspective, you know, we've spoken about consumer duty and inflation. Has have both of these co- coming at the same time? Um, it's called. Is it two different kind of blows at the same time? And and how are how are insurers that are still in the market that haven't uh, moved away from certain product lines? How are they managing at the moment that you've seen? Um, I think there are two forces that have come together. But as I said before, I think consumer duty um, to a large part has already been in place for general insurers. So I think it's the impact of inflation and the cost of living crisis more generally that's had the biggest um, impact on on products and services offered by insurers. Um, I think um, the the cost of living crisis in particular has led insurers to look for, for cheaper products. Um, and insurers have innovated off the back of that. They've created simpler products, um, and that has kind of 
changed the market a little bit and also led insurers to um, look more towards digital products, online products, which are often uh, cheaper um, to deliver to customers. Has this created better value for customers, do you see? Has, has, there, been, has there been the pickup that uh, insurers have maybe expected or hoped? Um, I think so. I think there's been a big shift towards simpler products. Um, whether it provides better value, it provides different value. So you're stripping a product down to its essential components without all of the bells and whistles. So people are getting less coverage, but hopefully they're getting the essential coverage mm. that they need. Branko? Yeah, the danger of stripping out important bits is that a typical consumer won't realise that that's been taken out. So, for example, driving other cars extension, to some that's a very important thing to have. And unless you go through a broker who's going to give you specific advice, you don't know that that's been removed. Who the hell's going to read all this? But um, if you're stripping out too much, you know, how much worth is there in that particular product? How many stars is that going to attract? And in this cost of living crisis, I don't personally think the insurance industry has performed at all well. I have never seen a product come down in price. All my insurances have gone up. Uh, And you see horror stories about motor insurance going up. I know it's difficult to make money on motor insurance, but at the same time, you know, through personal examples, the amount spent on claims unnecessarily without without containment of cost is just amazing how how so much leakage and yet this is money that's being wasted which you know doesn't have to be wasted uh, and there should be a lot more tighter control on spend to be then reflected in a premium that does offer fair value and insurers have to assess the distribution of their products as well and there's a lot of leakage there people are being paid commissions perhaps that are overly generous for what they're doing and you know that's all being paid for by the um, customer at the end of all this Rory so going on from Branco's point what could insurers be doing more to look at and streamline their claims their claims processes bringing down bringing down prices for customers because as Branco said people are insurers are wasting money I think there's an awful lot. I think if you take Motor, which is one of the examples being used here, um, if you look at the way repair networks are being managed, uh, the garage supply generally, it's it's very poor. The orchestration of those experiences is poor. There's a huge amount of leakage. Um, if you take the case of fraud, and we, we always see opportuni- opportunistic fraud increase in these res- recessionary conditions, um, but we only detect one billion of the three billion of fraud in, in the UK. Um, there is almost no reason why we couldn't detect all of it. So, you know, we need to try harder in all of these areas. And it is true to say that the insurers have not fully stepped up to a lot of those challenges. I think this comes down to as well, the other point that's being raised, which is insurers are policy centric. You know, if you are willing to exit 300,000 customers or 100,000 customers through a price hike, which is what ultimately has been happening, you can't value a customer. What you're doing is looking at them as as policy. And policy centric insurers need to give way now to meet inflationary conditions and the consumer duty, actually both require uh, customer-centric insurers to finally arrive. Um, so this is going to create a great positive outcome, though, right? The competitive forces are acting in the in the right way, in my opinion. Just to add to that, if I may, um, you know, FOS came out today with some alarming statistics, and insurers seem to be doing their best to beat down total loss valuations. And I always find that, you know, if, if there's a deliberate ploy to push down the total loss and yet if an insurer sorry if an insured 
overstates their claim, that's fraud. But if an insurer deliberately reduces a total loss settlement, that's just called negotiating. You can't have it both ways. Mm. Yes, this is the this is the data from the FOS saying yes. saying about uh, complaints in in motor and home is that yeah five, fivefold, five, and uh, it's that's just, that's not good. So those are consumers venting their anger at a time of crisis where uh, the insurer is not performing. And you know, I, I used to do claims years ago when I started insurance. The engineer gave you a valuation band, but we all know anyone that's tried to buy a second-hand car recently, as I have for my two kids, they, they cost so much more. So how can total loss settlements be beaten down when you simply can't then buy a used car for the amount that you're being given? It's just not right, and therefore insurers should be looking carefully at the true value of that car rather than beating down the consumer. It's, it's case in point with uh, with Eric Martin, isn't it? With hmm. uh, the SCA ordering them to do a to do a review of their previous business around their total. And lot. they've stepped up. They're going to do some refunding, but you know you must be conscious. There must be a policy to reduce claim settlements orchestrated at a very senior level and then going through to the claims department where that's just simply goes against everything that insurance is all about hence the negativity mm. in the press Sarah I, it seems like everyone's in agreement that insurers could could be doing more around their claims uh, around their claims operations and pricing etc um, what what measures out there are there out there that insurers could adopt to maybe help them on that journey to uh, because at the moment it seems like it's going to get worse before it gets better um, that's a difficult one in in terms of MI and, and things different uh, metrics that insurers could look at um, to get a picture of where they are on some of these issues I think complaints is a really important source of information looking at complaints data doing a really good root, root cause analysis as well. Um, often that's done poorly by insurers. So really getting to the bottom of, of why uh, a customer has, has complained um, and looking at the root causes of that and then putting in place um, strategies to address kind of systemic issues that are identified. Hmm. Um, well, Martin, I'll come back to you. I mean, we'll look at, um, we've spoken about motor quite a bit, uh, but are there any other lines or pro or sectors within the market that have seen um, a, a, a spike because of because of the uh, in uh, because of the rate of inflation? Well, I think it, it rings true across the board. I mean, certainly we've seen that that um, home uh, home premiums are, at, are again record highs, although they're still you know low. It does not cost a lot in comparison to other other countries to insure your property. Um, in the UK but interestingly we still have sort of chronic underinsurance issues there where people you know either choose not to insure their um, property or perhaps have just uh, don't have the appropriate level of cover and I think consumer duty will actually help with that as insurers start to take steps to ensure that the product for your home is appropriate for your needs so that in the event of a, a claim you know you don't find the customer doesn't find that they are you know, exposed to either, um, you know, uh, large excesses uh, or, or not enough cover for everything that they need to be replaced. So ho home's a really good example where we've seen those in that inflationary um, pressure. 
Um, but again, I think that rings true across across all markets, really, um, and, and pet included as well, which is which is in the news most recently. You know, it costs <laughs> more to more to insure your uh, your pet pooch than it does to insure your home. So uh, it's, right it's a really <laughs> interesting dynamic in in, in the market. So. Just just to add there the. Um we, we, on household, you know, when I started, everyone had a RICS rating guide. So we encouraged the insured to physically measure two parts of their building to work out the square footage and then double that and then apply that by an age metric to work out the rebuilding sum insured. And you think, but who the hell can do that? So a number of insurers said, well, up to a million pounds rebuilding sum insured that's it you know tell us your postcode answer these few questions and we'll tell you what it costs nice and easy and some insurers also maybe on the high net worth side um, they've got a unlimited basic sum insured as long as the valuables don't go over this amount you don't need to specify things so that's a nice easy way for people not to stress about whether or uh, not they're covered but you know for someone someone to work out what their rebuilding sum insured is that's just asking far too much. Is that almost like a parametric solution? Yeah, but you know, if you buy a brand new house, you know that the rebu- the cost of building that house isn't what you've paid for it. It could be a half or a quarter of what you've paid for it because of where the house is. So it, the land will still be there, whatever happens. So to rebuild the bricks and mortar, that's what you're insuring. But in the, you know, people just say, well, I paid half a million for it, so I'm going to insure it for half a million. But no, you don't need to insure it for that. So if you're getting advice, someone will say, well, no, you actually don't need to insure it for that amount. But these insurers don't you need you to state the rebuilding sum insured. So long as it doesn't exceed a million pounds, you're fine which makes it so much easier and, and less stressful and then you can't um, under disclose sums insured because it's generous to begin with and this comes back full circle to the to the other point you know about the complexity of insurance and what we can do to, to simplify things because that's quite a, a specific example but we still ask people what the building material of their roof is in insurance experiences I've sat in depth interviews and watched people just guess now they will go through insurance claims experiences and be told that they're you know potentially a opportunistic fraud or that they're overclaiming and this is this is you know this has got a shift right this is a big part of this duty that we're seeing responsibility for insurers to actually disclose and help uh, customers far far better uh, in these kind of areas is going to be is going to be vital is it Rory I'll stick with you is it a case of bringing out these more simple uh, simpler products is it a case of the insurer trying to stay relevant and stay on side of of the of the customer you know because as Martin said you know there's there's uh, more and more instances of people especially in the home um, sector of either re- seriously reducing their level of cover or just deciding not to cover at all if your only option is price-led as an insurer and their only choice is to act on that price then we're in a we're in an uncompetitive and untenable situation so there has to be a different answer I think uh, adaptive insurance cover where you understand how you can flex your risk to price far better and understand how that fits with you is, is, is definitely one answer. It will at least help customers to understand the full choices and, and options that they have available so that when they are subject to a price increase, they at least understand understand that. And I remember working seven years ago with um, Co-op Insurance who really wanted to demystify insurance pricing. We were told by everybody that no customer would understand how their home was being priced. And we, we created what we call transparent pricing, which for every customer you could literally have a breakdown, a visual breakdown audio 
breakdown of how your price was being calculated. And at the time, there happened to be a huge amount of flood risk and people were unaware why their premiums were hiking. So it wasn't inflation related. It was the fact that they're an insurance business that insure people in high flood risk areas and it had affected the entire book and that. But once explained, that shifted dramatically the customer response the retention rates went up dramatically so there are just lots of examples of when you act on in the interest of the customer that you can overcome a lot of these problems so that's one so that's placing the the customer experience card and and, and the other absolutely is is it is it fair and reasonable that insurers imme- immediately get to transfer essentially their the inflationary impact on onto customers and they're not they're they're actually reflecting that in policies again you would not exit a customer if you could value a customer in any other business in the world if you're an ecosystem business not a value chain based business which is what most other industries have moved towards you would not exit that customer you would consider either taking on some of the economic burden of that mm-hmm. or we're still seeing insurers price to profit right mm-hmm. so it's not like they're they're going oh let's meet you halfway we'll we'll take a zero on this one they're pricing to profit so let's not make make the mistake there they are absolutely passing on the burden of this claims inflation and, and other inflationary conditions onto their customer mm-hmm. um and Allianz said recently and i thought it was quite inspiring you know, came out with a fairly good um, article about how they felt that actually this is time for insurers to, to step up and, and, and play their role in, in some of this economic um, um, impact and pressure. I think the point was raised earlier that this is long term as well. So they also identified a lot of that. I think we're in danger again of just talking about current things as a current economic problem. Mm. A lot of this stuff doesn't go away. It gets worse. Things are going to get more complicated. So, the, sorry, just just to add there, the, in the value assessment, there's nothing to stop an insurer explaining the component pricing, and they should, because a broker needs to work out, you know, what what are the elements of that premium which the insurer should have looked at. So, what's the risk premium? What's this? What's that? What's the what are the distribution costs to arrive? a sensible amount of money but Rory's put such a good one you know how many insurers have given back during this cost of living crisis and I I would be hard pushed to say for me personally not one because I've not seen a reduction and how many people out there have seen reductions in their premiums they haven't you know premium finance has gone up commissions may have stayed level but the commission is on the premium which has gone up so brokers are being paid more money to do the same or even less if the market becomes restrictive you haven't got to take tout the risk around you've only got a few players that want to touch the risk and therefore there is less work so the distribution costs themselves should come down because there's less to do but you know that fair value assessment should be a little bit more scientific to enable customers to truly believe that that premium is the right premium for the right risk and that they are not just a cash cow brokers you know during that fca um review into into fair value assessments brokers showed that they weren't fully yet up to speed with with the with the with value assessments and so I think that what disturbed me on that was multi-occupancy. You've got the 13 largest brokers placing 85% of the risks. Mm. And if they themselves are not aware of their costs and why they're paying away £80 million to other organisations, something's gone badly wrong. Mm. They're huge brokers. They have incredibly you know, well-paid people to understand all this. And for them not to be aware of you know whether the commission is commensurate with the amount of work that you're doing to me was completely and utterly uh, baffling Tara I don't know if I want to bring you in on on the, on the multi-occupancy uh, but is it a case 
is it a case of uh, transparency and being more transparent in your in your uh, with the customer as to why prices may or may not be going up? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, one of the key pillars of consumer duty. It's all about allowing the customer to understand their product, understand the price they're paying, um, and anything that insurers can do to aid that, I think, is, is definitely a positive. And um, as Rory said, there are lots of things that they could be doing that they're not doing. Um, so I think that is really key. Um, but just going back to the inflation question and, and passing on um, to insurers, I, I don't think we've seen the worst of it yet either, because I think um, insurers um, do their claims reserving based on historic data, and we haven't yet seen that inflation come through the historic data so I think there will be more surprises to come which will lead uh, to f future uh, further premium increases mm. um, so I don't I think the worst is not over in that regard yeah I think um, not long not too long ago Mervyn Skeet from the ABI said that uh, especially in motor premiums are going to have to go up because there's that lag between uh, inflation and and uh, the, the market kind of reacting to it for worry you've got. Yeah, I've got a wider point to it. It's, it's going to give the insurers a get-out-of-jail card. But the other thing that I'm concerned by still is that shareholders still do demand an awful lot of money out of their insurers at these times. There's very little leeway in the, in the stock market for insurers. I think they're all too often considered cash cows at a time when actually we need them to be uh, you know, to transform and we need them to invest and reinvest that money. If I was hearing that these profits were being maintained through premium rises and all that money was going back into fixing some of the long-term problems that my colleague here has referred to earlier, you know, that aren't going to go away, then there probably would be a different a different point of view being shared on this on this in, in this conversation. So I think also we've got a wider macro uh, uh, view here. I think government need to step in. Uh, I believe that they have a, a much wider role to play in helping some of our insurance businesses out. When we look at some of the risk changes in home, not all of the inflationary stuff is economic. There's a lot more uh, lower level flood and even dry land risk that's coming into the market. There are you know, reinsurance products that insurers could do better at, at taking on. We have a build back better issue. If you keep building properties in high risk areas with the same building materials and someone in the same way that you did before, you're not going to address some of the longer-term environmental problems that we're facing as well. So I think there's this bigger macro mm. uh, set of pressures that, that I think the insurers need help with. Yeah, I think those are really valid points because you know uh, young drivers are finding motor insurance prohibitively expensive and the number of insurers wanting to insure young drivers, even with black box technology, is a lot less. And that then means that a certain part of society... You know, we, we want a car, you need a car for work, you, you need a car for social purposes, you can afford to run it. But when the insurance for a newly qualified driver is exceeding £2,000, that just, just, just means that they will never be able to do that because it becomes unaffordable unless their parents help. So I know the experience on motor insurance isn't that good, but if you are an investor there are other things you can invest in. Insurance is a very difficult investment because you've got two uh, interests that are polar opposite. You want insurers as an investor to pay as little as possible in claims, whereas you sell an insurance policy on the basis that if X, Y, and Z happen, my claim will be paid, and there is no maximum to this. You know, The insurer will pay all the valid claims it receives. An investor wants completely the opposite, so those two will always um, be... Uh, causing friction with each other. This might be a uh, 
a bit off topic. I, I don't know, but um, Rory, I'll come back to you. Sorry, on, on the on the point that you were talking about, money being um, filtered back to shareholders uh, with the recent Solvency Two reforms. You know, Aviva have, have been very uh, strong advocates of of that and come out and said that it's gonna it's gonna free up so much money, uh, hundred hundred million pounds, whatever, in 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 a in extra money that they can reinvest into the infrastructure and into into their business rather than just giving it to shareholders. But the Bank of England have recently come out and said that they're not going to hold them accountable to to make sure that they pay it. Do you think is are, how will we ensure that the money is going back where it should and not as you say to uh, to shareholders? Well, we do need that accountability coming from government is my first point of view on that but I think you're lucky with the Aviva example because they've got an exceptional leader in Amanda Blanc who I think is a very customer centric CEO and yeah we're lucky to have people like that in our industry and I think she probably will live up to those promises um, but, but customers don't necessarily buy promises and there is a wider understanding of that solvency uh, fluidity that's going back into these businesses it's been quite well publicised and I've even had conversations with my mum recently about <laughs> you know as an Aviva customer will she see that money Um I think that's a mistake, right? That's not money that's going to come back into premiums. That, that, again, I think that money needs to go back into fixing some of the long-term problems. I mean, Aviva is a market leader that I still couldn't describe as an ecosystem insurer. I don't. Uh, they're, they're a policy-centric business. Their business model is shifting. If they if they were to use that money to address that, and I think consumer duty, and we've had that point raised um, very well already, but that's what it will force. You know, it will force them to come back and and. Have the, have the knowledge of the customer and the ability to act on it in a much more dynamic way. And making the point about motor policies, usage-based insurance is one. Um, you asked me, for example, earlier about what insurers can do to reduce claims inflation. The other one is that you know cars since 2008 could more or less self-report a claim if you bothered to integrate into that ecosystem. That would take vast amounts of the costs out. That would allow usage-based insurance to be much more fluid. That would help a lot of these these scenarios. So I think there's it, you know this this need for that money to come back into the insurance industry not necessarily go back into to cutting cutting premiums cool uh thank you um i'll go i'll go around the the table uh more of a future uh, almost kind of wrapping up what what we've been saying so for for everyone martin i'll come to you first what how do you see uh the regulatory impact affecting and inflation affecting the industry uh over the coming year or year and a half yeah, well, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so as we've sort of talked about throughout this, I don't think we're we're, we're at the start of the journey, if you like. We're, we're by no means through um, the impacts that we felt as a result of regulation. Um, you know, we, we've started to see the effects in terms of companies being fined if they don't adhere to certain practices. We've seen that in the press. You don't have to scratch too deep to see. Uh, and I think we'll see some more of that as we go um, through the course of the next 12 months. But if we continue to see the same trends, um, the consumers will ultimately benefit. I think for me, there is still a transparency and trust question around basic products and so on that are being offered to customers and whether or not they're actually fit for purpose. Are they genuinely fit for that that individual customer? And I think consumer duty will help establish that they are. But I think insurers are going to have to work quite hard to make sure um, that they, you know, they, they truly are understanding the individual need of that specific customer. So I think that regulation will start to bite more um, as we go through the next 12 months. But I, I fully expect some organisations to um, to come a cropper uh, and, and find themselves appearing in the uh, in the news for all the wrong reasons as well. Keep us busy. Uh, Rory? I think, that, I think all of that's right. I think there's going to be winners and losers. 
um, with a, with this amount of uh, market pressure, not just regulation, but the inflation topic we've talked about, but other competitive dynamics moving in. I think there there absolutely will be winners and losers. Um, I hope actually that there there are less losers than I would expect at the moment. I think I hope that actually we'll find more adaptive insurers, insurers that can find the the right customer for, for you know for the the business and that and that they want to operate. Um, but my suspicion is that we'll we'll see a continuation of exiting customers by outpricing them, um, and eventually that will will catch up with those insurers. Um, I think what we need to see over the next 12 months is a, is that genuine shift at the heart of insurers that they shift their business models and their ability to act in a customer-centric way dramatically. I think token one-off innovation, um, digitizing the front end has got to give way to a true sense of, of, of transformation in the industry. So I think ultimately this creates a more competitive market. Um, I think that, uh, again, that reiterates a lot of the points we've discussed. I think this is a massive opportunity. Um, and not just an obligation. So um, my expectation is that insurers will catch up with that idea. Thank you, Branko. Yeah, just um, sort of looking at distribution costs. It's, I think brokers have always stepped up to the challenge. But uh, as we saw in the multi-occupancy report, um, you're being paid a percentage of the premium, and premiums are going up, but you're not actually doing anything more for. Uh, the amount of money that you're being paid so I think brokers really need to think carefully about that as do insurers in terms of how much they're paying for distribution and with the multi-occupancy the rules are due the final rules I believe are due by the end of the year Um, and there's a lot of government attention on that the you know will we see a shift away from commissions I don't know Um, but we've seen examples of incredibly large commissions being paid for in essence not a huge amount of work and that's caused concern to leaseholders uh, and to government so those reforms I believe are going to have to be incredibly impactful to sort out the problem that we have now but then if commission you know brokers work very hard to place the risk they do a lot of the work up front for no fee at all but then the commission comes in once the business is booked but insurers have to sensibly work out what level of commission is appropriate for the amount of work being done which is what the fair value assessment should enable but i haven't seen much sort of scientific calculation of the commission being a commensurate spend for the uh, distribution costs that are being incurred so yeah it's it's more there's an onus on both the broker and the insurer to make sure that there is fair value with which, which yeah, but don't forget you know we've had those rules scots since october 2021 mm. so um I, I was somewhat taken aback that uh, the fca was reminding people when it came to multi-occupancy that and it was a surprise that the 13 largest brokers didn't quite understand that which really did confuse me Mm. Uh, Sarah Um, if I take a slightly different track in terms of what insurers might expect from the FCA uh, obviously consumer duty is in force now Um, I think the FCA has been on a journey with the industry as well so they've been learning along the way I think insurers can probably expect more robust supervisory kind of investigations and conversations around consumer duty. Um, So expect more challenge. I think the FCA also will call out products that they think aren't delivering value um, and and examples of bad practice 
as well. Um, and then I guess the other thing I'd mention, the bit of consumer duty that hasn't quite come in yet, is on um, the reviews of closed products. So as insurers, they're already progressing through those reviews, but as they do that, I think we'll see more examples of products which um, have not provided good value in the past and possibly more redress schemes coming in. Interesting regulatory um, on the uh, measures on the horizon, I, I think. Uh, be interesting to see what com what does come through in the next year, or you know, in, in the form of fines or something like that, or you know, enforcement action. Um, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Insurance Post podcast. I would like to thank Rory, Branco, Sarah, and Martin for joining us and sharing their insight on the developments that shaped the insurance industry in 2023. As always, also thanks to you for listening to the Insurance Post podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to Insurance Post and following us on Facebook, LinkedIn and on X. Make sure you come back next week when we'll be discussing the impact climate change is having on insurance. Until then, this is Scott McGee signing off. The Insurance Post podcast is a product of InfoPro Digital.